Uh, all right, ladies, let's just try this. I prayed over you guys. We're just all gonna right. go for it. Um, yes. So if any of you ladies, it may work better to just kind of be lecture style, but if any of you want to answer a question, do you see how if you click on the bottom of your screen, it says participants. Um, if you click on that, it shows you everyone next to you, or oh. everyone who's on. And then if you want to answer a question, you could click raise hands. Oh. And I know you want to answer, but we'll just dive in and we'll see what happens, ladies. Okay, okay. let's. Let's go for it. So today we are in 1 Corinthians. We're going to be going through chapter 14. Um, let's just do a really short review. Okay. So we know that we're in, um, just to start, we know that we are in the middle of Paul's third missionary journey. Uh, his first missionary journey took him to Galatia with Barnabas. Remember him and Barney planning churches. He returns to Antioch and writes Galatians to the churches through that. Um, then we have the Jerusalem Council. Um, actually, ladies, tells us for now, why don't you all try muting your backgrounds? See if you can all mute your background. And that'll just give our, our recording quality a little bit better. So, how do I do that? All right. Bottom your screen. Actually, you know what? I think I can mute. Let me see. Can I mute you all? Uh, no, I think that has to be Jim, has to mute you all. So, if you see on your, yeah, on your screen, Julie um yeah it's just julie uh is not muted so on the bottom of your screen julie do you see what looks like a little microphone i just see record at the top right okay do you see want well, something that looks like a, a microphone no all right all right you just try and be quiet julie <laughs> so there's a microphone that if you click on it it will mute it but um let's we'll keep going Okay, so second missionary journey. Oh, for after after Galatians, when we got the Jerusalem Council, which led into the second missionary journey with Silas, and um, returns to Galatia to circulate the letter from the Jerusalem Council. We've been through that. He plants churches at that point in Philippi, Thessalonica, and Corinth, where he stays for 18 months. While staying in Corinth, Paul writes the letters, the two letters to the church at Thessalonica, Thessalonians, first and second. He then travels to Ephesus. He leaves Priscilla and Aquila there to pastor the church and returns to Antioch. So that's the end of the second missionary journey. After some time, Paul decides to return to the churches he has planted to strengthen them. And now we get missionary journey number three. So at the same time, we learned Priscilla and Aquila meet Apollos in Ephesus. We learned that Apollos speaks with great fervor and he has a great knowledge of the scriptures. After some time, he wants to go to Corinth. And the Ephesus church encourages. They say, go for it, Apollos. So Apollos shows up in Corinth. He's a great communicator. The people love him. We've talked about that. He, Paul then travels to Ephesus during his third missionary journey, reunites with Aquila and Priscilla, and stays there between two and three years. And we believe that this is when his correspondence with the church in Corinth begins. So we, we think there's likely four letters and a number of visits that occur. We've talked about how we believe that um, 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter written to the church at Corinth. Um, we've talked about that, the reasons for that based on internal evidence, things he says. And the church at Corinth writes back with specific questions, as we've discussed, and also members from Chloe's household show up uh, in person to tell Paul about problems going on at the church in Corinth. So Paul's alarmed to hear what is going on, and because he loves this church in Corinth, and so he writes the church to address these issues. 
So before we dive in, let's review what we know about the book of 1 Corinthians. So we, we've said every time who's the author, and you ladies know it's Paul, right? Uh, who's the audience? The Church of Corinth. We all know that. Uh, and then when and where was it written? We believe it was likely written about 56 AD, towards the end of Paul's time in Ephesus. And why do we think this? It comes from the closing, from 1 Corinthians 16, two different verses. In verse 8, he actually says specifically, I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost. So he says very clearly he's in Ephesus. And then from 16.9 or 16.19, he says that he sends greetings from Priscilla and Aquila and the church that meets in their home, which we know they're in Ephesus. So that's why we think he's there. Um, and then what is Paul writing? We've talked about this. It's a letter. Um, it's not supposed to be a full theological explanation, but it addresses certain issues going on in this particular church. And so why is Paul writing this? Well, as we've mentioned, he's answering their questions that they have, um, and he's telling them, how do you live your faith in this crazy pagan culture? So, and we've talked about that, that we too are trying to live our faith in what sometimes seems like a bit of a crazy pagan culture too. So today, uh, we are going to walk through a little bit of a, rev a, rev a review for 1 Corinthians. So go ahead, open up your Bible. I got my pretty turquoise one here. Open it up to 1 Corinthians if you've got it with you. And we'll just do a little bit of a walk through chapters 1 through um, 13 very briefly. Um, so we've talked about how Paul starts by reminding everyone who he is, which is an apostle, verse 1. And he says, remember me, I'm the apostle, called by Christ. Remember who you are, not the apostle. And he says, but he tells the Corinthians, who are they? And according to verse two, he says, they are sanctified in Jesus Christ and called to be holy. He reminds them also that God has not called them to a set of rules, but he calls them to what in verse nine? And we see that that's fellowship with Jesus. And we have remind ourselves that that's a really important premise to this whole book, that Paul talks a lot about behavior and actions, but we need to remember that the point is not rules, but a relationship with Jesus. And that's the same for all of us, as we've talked about before, that we are not called to rules, but to a relationship with Jesus. And that relationship will determine how we make our choices. So what is the problem that Paul has heard about in verse 10? We know what it is. It's, it's divisions among them, right? There's divisions in the church. And what are the quarrels about? It's that uh, what Christian leader should they follow? That there are four factions dividing the people. Some are saying that they, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Peter or I follow Jesus. So we remember that Paulus is the super speaker, right? That he won himself um, a following and mentioned how um, Paul never criticizes Apollos for being a great preacher, which I think is, is interesting. He just criticizes the Corinthians for hero, hero worship and infighting and for thinking that wisdom lies in great eloquence. But we know that wisdom comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't have to be pretty or tell great stories or be theologically trained to have wisdom. We just need to walk close to Jesus, study his word, and be in tune with the Holy Spirit. And God has different roles for all of us, which he talks about. Like he had different roles for Apollos and for Paul. Paul preached initially or planted the seed. Apollos continued preaching our water in the seed and God makes it grow. Many of us will have roles like Apollos, walking alongside other women, 
watering the seed that God has planted in their hearts. We do that when we encourage each other, when we say, keep going, girl, even when it's scary, God's in control, stick with it. Um, and we all need that right now, don't we? We really all need a lot of encouragement. And that's what we do when we, when we encourage each other, we water the seed that God has planted in other people's hearts. So Paul tells the Corinthians that um, with that seed, planted in them, they're actually temples. And this is where he transitions to that part where he talks about um, the spirit dwells in them. And because of that, their bodies matter and their choices matter because God dwells literally inside of them. So three weeks ago, we talked about how Paul told them to turn away from sexual immorality because their bodies are temples to the Holy Spirit. Um, he says, don't allow any kind of sexual stain in your life, but do extend grace and mercy towards the unbeliever, regardless of their lifestyle. Two weeks ago, we talked about food sacrifice to idols. Um, can a Corinthian Christian eat the food sold in the marketplace? That was the question they're asking. And if they're not sure if it was for sacrifice to an idol before making its way to the marketplace, can they, should they be worried about that? And Paul says to eat meat or not eat meat, it doesn't really matter. Food sacrifice to an idol is nothing, but our choices should be based on what is the most loving thing to do. Not what does my knowledge of what is right and wrong say it's okay to do, but if my actions affect someone else's choices, then what is the most loving thing to do? I need to make sure that my choices don't cause someone younger in the faith to stumble, to make decisions that might send them back into a non-Christian lifestyle. Then last week, we talked about corporate worship and spiritual gifts. The same question underlies all of those. What is the most loving, most honoring thing to do? We talked about headship and head coverings. Uh, if you want to listen to that, go back to last week because I'm not going to review all that right now. Um, and with spiritual gifts, we saw that the Holy Spirit gives all people, all Christian people, certain abilities. And the goal of these abilities or spiritual gifts is love. We are given these abilities as gifts for others for building up the body of Christ. And it really, I was really thinking about that, how these are spiritual gifts because the things that we get, the abilities that we have are gifts for those around us. Um, the, even the most amazing Christian acts though are nothing if not motivated by love. And that's why that whole love chapter follows after gifts. So I encourage you ladies to think about how you can act in super loving ways right now. Um, how can you can use your spiritual gifts now to love and encourage someone around you? We all need a lot of love and encouragement right now. Um, okay, so that's our review. So today we have one of the most actually controversial passages about women in scripture. Yay! <laughs> so excited for that. Um, so, but kind of like last week, um, I, I wasn't sure I had the energy for it this week, but you know, we charge on because we cannot cut and paste the Bible. And I was actually really happy that I forced myself to charge into this because um, it was really good. So, um, but we have to always seek to understand based on context, what is going on here. So we pick up today in chapter 14, still in the context of honoring each other in public worship. We talked about head, uh, head coverings last week, then spiritual gifts. Um, and now we turn to gifts of prophecy and tongues. So let's ask the question, what is Paul's big idea or point? Since we know there are no chapter breaks, um, originally, I'm actually going to start with 1 Corinthians 13, 13, and then read um, 14, 1. And so the question we're asking is, um, what, what is Paul's big idea? Or what is his point? What is he getting at? So 
I'm going to start with 13, 13, and then read 14, 1. So the end of, of chapter 13, end of the love chapter, says, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Follow the way of love and eagers, eagerly desire gifts of the spirit, especially prophecy. So Paul tells the Corinthians to follow the way of what, according to verse one, it's love. Um, and eagerly desire what else in verse one? Do you ladies see it? It's gifts of the spirit. But he says, especially desire what? Do you ladies see it's prophecy? So the spiritual gift Paul wants them to desire most is prophecy. So we ask why? Should we always desire prophecy above all the other spiritual gifts? Well, not necessarily. Paul's there is after this going to compare tongues with prophecy and encourage them to seek the gift of prophecy more. So the question is why? What is going on in the Corinthian church that Paul is telling them to seek prophecy over tongues. So I'm going to read to you ladies from chapter 14 verses 1 through 5. Go ahead and read along with me. So follow the way of love and eagerly eagerly desire gifts of the spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church is edified. All right, so it seems that the difference between prophecy and tongues is that tongues only benefits ourselves and prophecy benefits those around us. So in corporate worship, what's better then? You can even shout it out. It's prophecy, right? Because it benefits everyone. In verse two, anyone who speaks in tongues does not speak to men, but to who? And it's to God, exactly. So he says he utters mysteries with his spirit um, which seems to sort of be an ecstatic spiritual language. Um, some of you ladies may be prayer warriors and may have actually experienced this. Um, I did when I was on the mission field after college. Um, I actually prayed um, with some amazing women who all had the gift of tongues. And it was crazy. I'd never actually experienced it, never heard it before. Um, you know, I'm raised in this Presbyterian church here. Um, but it was really amazing. And I felt so like blessed and encouraged by them praying over me. And um, I actually like really wanted it. So I kept praying for um, a long time, Lord Jesus, give me the gift of tongues. I want to experience this. And I will be honest, I had a couple like kind of awkward experiences trying it, but I like it never, it never came. And so I realized it just wasn't my I gift. Like and um, personally, I think my language of prayer to God is often worship music. And that that's just something I love. And that's way a way that I like speak to God and feel so encouraged by him. So, um, and I know in some circles, tongues is considered like a marker of being filled with the Holy Spirit. That if you don't speak in tongues, you're not really spirit filled. There's some Christian circles that kind of lean that way. Um, but that's not something we see supported in scripture. Um, we see tongues as a gift 
not the gift. Uh, though, if that's something that some of you want to experience, I would ask God for it. It may be your gift. It wasn't mine, but it could be yours. Um, but when we speak in tongues, we draw closer to God and are edified. But the whole body in group worship isn't edified unless someone can do what in verse five? Do you see it? It's mm -hmm. interpret. So since the goal of love is to love others, prophecy in group worship is the better gift. Does that make sense? Because the idea is to build up everyone around you. And so why in verse four, it says anyone who prophesies strengthens and comforts and encourages others. And that's the point of group worship, right? To encourage others. Paul then supports his argument with some really practical examples. Uh, so these are just practical things he's taking from experiences from culture to say sort of why this is more important. Um, so I'm going to read chapter 14 verses 6 through 12. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as, such as a pipe or harp, how will anyone know what time, what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I'm a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you're eager for gifts of the spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. So if Paul visits them and just speaks in tongues, he says, what good will that do? How will they be encouraged in their spiritual journey through unintelligible prayer words? Um, with musical instruments or a trumpet calling people to battle. He talks about those examples in verses seven through eight. There has to be a clear sound that makes sense to those who hear it so that whatever action is required happens. Um, it's like also speaking to someone who speaks a different language in verse 10. I was thinking about, is it like so frustrating if you're traveling and you're trying to ask someone for directions and you speak different languages? It's like, ah, I just, I'm just trying to get somewhere. So it just, it just is harder, right? So um, that's what tongues is like. It's just unhelpful for anyone else. So Paul returns to his main point in verse 12, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. Now, tongues can have a place in corporate worship. Paul next talks about how tongues do benefit our spirits, verses 13 through 21. Um, I'll let you ladies read that part on your own. I'm going to kind of skip over that. Uh, Paul's point is that tongues are awesome for your own relationship with God, but can be very confusing in public worship. So especially if an unbeliever were to tentatively walk into church some Sunday, what would their experience be like? Would they feel loved? Would they feel convicted of their own sin? So I'm going to read now. I'm going to skip over to verses 23 through 25, still in chapter 14. All right, verse, verse 23. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all, as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Okay, 
So if a whole church is speaking in tongues, which it sounds like could have been happening at the church in Corinth, and an unbeliever walks in, what would they say? Verse 23, they'd say, you're out of your minds. Um, they would just look like a bunch of crazy people. But if an unbeliever walks into church and someone is prophesying or giving a word of instruction, he could do what? According to verse 24, he could be convinced that he is a sinner. So an unbeliever could be faced with the reality of their own sin and repent, turning to Jesus. His response would be to fall down and, and worship, verse 25, and say what? Say, God is really among you. So through tongues, a visitor to a church might think that the whole church is crazy, which we could all probably imagine if all these people were just kind of speaking in an ecstatic language together. But probably um, many of us um, know someone who has had their heart turned to Jesus by words spoken at church, by a sermon or a testimony from someone. Um, so, okay, so tongues build up the individual, prophecy the group. That's the whole point. Um, and is there ever a time that tongues can be used in a church service? And Paul turns to that. So that's verses 26 through 28. So chapter 14, 26 through 28. He says, uh, what then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two, or the most three, should speak one at a time, and someone should interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. So when the church in Corinth meets, um, there should be a song, a hymn, a word of instruction, a tongue. So tongues can be used in corporate worship, but how? There just needs to be order. So um, how many people can speak in tongues according to Paul? Verses 23, verse 23, he says maybe two or three, right? But someone must do what? Do you see it? Someone must interpret. Some people have the gift of interpreting tongues. Um, but if they don't have someone in the service who can interpret this tongue, this spoken language, the person with the tongue should do what? According to verse 28. Do you see that? They should keep quiet and speak to himself and to God. Along with tongues, prophets can also speak in church. Um, but you guessed it. There's order to prophecy also. Though so he's gone through order of tongues, and now he's going to talk about, so how, do, how does prophecy occur in an orderly way as well? So now I'm going to read verses 29 through 33. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first person, first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. All right, so in the church at Corinth, two to three people uh, with the gift of prophecy can stand up and share a word from God. While the person shares, what should the others in the congregation do? Do you see it? It's really important. Verse 29 says, they have to weigh carefully what is being said. So he says that the listeners should corporately agree that the word being spoken is true. If a revelation comes to someone sitting down, what should the first, what should the first speaker do? According to verse 30, they should do what? They should stop. 
If everyone, everyone can prophesy in turn with the goal of doing what, according to verse 31? So that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. That's the goal. And the next line, the spirit of prophets are subject to the control of prophets, may give us a sense of the disorder happening in worship in this church in Corinth. It seems like some are going into this ecstatic kind of prophecy of see, saying God was taking over their bodies. And, but Paul says, no, even the person speaking a prophetic word is in control of their spirit or is in control of their body. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Okay, ladies, now we get to the controversial bit. Okay, so Jesus, give us wisdom as women and have our hearts be obedient to you. So my version of the NIV, which I will say is put together by a board of theological women, has verse 33 understood as a complete sentence. So it ends exactly as I read it. So, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Now, um, many Bibles actually split that sentence so that 33b starts the next paragraph. All right. So now we remember chapters and verses were added after scrolls were written. So let's see how it sounds entirely, uh, how reading this line with the last paragraph or with the next. Okay. Um, I'm going to read, so I read 33 entirely. Um, so now I'm going to jump into verses 34 through 35. So this is what 34 and 35 said. Here's the controversial part. Okay. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home for it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now, like I said, some Bibles will put verse 33b before that. So if you read it that way, it's going to say, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people, women should remain silent in the churches. Do you see how that's a really key difference? Is it saying that in all congregations, women should always be silent? Or is it saying that maybe in this congregation, there's something going on? So this is a really big deal. So again, my version ended 33 as a complete sentence. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Some Bibles will end it, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, period. And then start it, as in all congregations of the Lord's people, women should remain silent in the churches. All right. Mm -hmm. So now you can see why that's so controversial. Um, and it becomes even more controversial if we attach 33b to the beginning of 34. So, all right, so this passage and one in Timothy, that a woman should not teach or have authority over a man, are the two passages that have been used to say a woman should not teach or preach at a church. Um, that is coupled with instructions to elders, which when, when, when written were seemingly directed at men alone. Um, so, those are really it. Those are the passages that people look at and say, well, when we look at all these three passages, that means that women shouldn't be preaching or teaching in a church. Um, but we have to ask the question, to what extent was that just cultural? Like men were the ones who were in the instructions to elders were given to men. Well, was that just cultural for the time? Or is that something that's forever and always? So when we evaluate passages like this, we have to ask three questions about it. And these are the three questions. Is it, is what is being talked about situational only? Is it situational going on 
Is it situational to something going on in this church alone? Is it cultural? Is it something that has to do with the cultural setting of the church? So is it situational to that church? Is it cultural to what's going around on the culture at that time? Like head coverings from last week. Most Christians would say a woman does not need to cover her head in church. That was a cultural thing. It represented a contrite and obedient and honoring spirit. But most people would say, no, an absolutely amazing Christian woman can walk into church with her head uncovered. Okay, but then, so is it situational? Is it cultural? Or third, is it theological? Is it something for all people for all time? Should women always in every church be silent and let men teach? See how that phrase in all the congregations of the saints really makes a difference? This has been something that I have struggled with a lot personally um, since I do feel called to teach. Um, to be honest, women's ministry feels very comfortable to me because there's no issue of a woman teaching of women teaching women in scripture. That's never an issue. Um, but when Paul asked me to preach, then that's where I had to look seriously at passages like this. Um, and it's something I actually really studied a lot in seminary and dealt with because for me, it matters. It applies to me personally. Um, in fact, when Paul asked me to preach the first time, um, I said, no, that was the summer after I came on staff. So then when he asked me again last summer to preach, I said, okay, I'll do it. Because I felt like if my senior pastor was asking me to preach, then I needed to do it. Um, but uh, so we always have to look at scripture in context, right? You, I've said so many times to you ladies, context is king. First, the context of the book itself, then in the context of the entire Bible. So if a passage seems to say something different, in the whole message of the Bible, we get curious and say, what is going on here? We don't throw it out. We dive deeper to try and understand it. So to start, does Paul in this letter to the Corinthians elsewhere say that women can speak in the church? So right now we're going at the context of just this book, just this letter. And the answer is yes. In 11.5, chapter 11.5, he says, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonored, dishonors her head. So it's under the subject of head coverings, but what does it assume? It assumes the women pray and prophesy in the church, right? So Paul assumes the women should pray, the, should and do pray publicly. He also assumes that they can give a word from God, a revelation or an instruction from God, they can prophesy. So Paul assumes that women can speak for God in corporate worship. So it's not true that in all the churches, women should be silent, entirely silent. Any church that goes to that extreme is proof texting, is taking one line from scripture and making it say what they want it to say. So then let's look at the context of where these words fall. Paul is addressing prophesy, in prophecy, instructing them to prophesy in turn, to not talk on top of each other, to have order and peace. At this time, as the church was forming, there was no central preacher or pastor. When they came together in verse 26, Paul says each of them should have a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. So church services did not yet have structure, and Paul is giving it to them. If women are being instructed in how to pray and prophesy in an orderly way, then it seems they are involved in these all these parts of the service. The women being addressed here, therefore, must be a certain group of women versus all women. 
so it's interesting because what kind of women are being addressed here? What does it say that they have? Do you see? It says they have husbands. Paul is here addressing, it seems, a group of married women. This doesn't have to do with women speaking in all churches because he says go up, that they should ask their husbands at home. So this is not all women for all time. It's somehow a group of women that he's addressing here. Uh, and remember, these letters were addressed to certain churches with certain issues going on in those churches. And we've already seen that the Corinthian church was a church of disorder. They were prophesying on top of each other. They were praying on top of each other. They were doing tongues on top of each other. There was no order to their service. Um, so this doesn't have to do with all women speaking in all churches, but something to do with married women in the context of prophecy or a group of married women in the context of prophecy. That's when we get more curious and understand that this is situational. What's going on here? Paul instructs the Corinthian church to prophesy in order and to weigh what is being said. The group together agrees if the word being spoken is um, to them is true, is from God. Most scholars agree that order within prophetic interpretation is the context. So somehow the order, because where this falls is when talking about interpreting prophecy correctly. So somehow order within prophetic interpretation is the context. Um, we may never know fully exactly what is going on here because again, this is written to a certain church in a certain place with certain issues. One explanation that is that women were supposed to keep silent in the deliberative process, in the process of deciding if what was being said in prophecy was true or not, when prophetic words were being evaluated. Or um, it could be back to the idea of honor in worship and headship. Um, it could be an instruction for wives to not second guess their husbands in public or question their prophecies and interpretations. Um, from this, we do conclude that women had an active role in the early church, that praying and prophesying, uh, with prophesying be, prophecy being giving a word of God from instruct, a word of, of instruction from God, that they're involved in that. But wives in this congregation were being instructed to respect order, which we already saw, because they're being instructed to wear head coverings and to have attitudes of submission. Um, so wives are being encouraged to respect order in the church and to honor their husbands in the service. This is something that Paul has already been talking about. And Paul concludes a section with these words from uh, 1439. He says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forget, forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. So again, it seems like he's talking about order. Um, the whole section has been about creating order in worship. And since the early church was figuring out what a worship service should look like, it makes sense. It shouldn't be a bunch of people praying and prophesying all at the same time. It should be done in an orderly fashion so that everyone is built up and encouraged. Um, church has evolved a lot, hasn't it, since the early church? And we Presbyterians, we love our order. And we can see that this order developed over time from instruction like this from the Apostle Paul. Um, as I mentioned, my intention was to go through chapters 15 and 16 today as well, but I, it's a lot because it's all about the resurrection and does the resurrection occur and what do our resurrection bodies look like? And I just felt like I needed to put that on hold and end with this. So, um, because there was just so much that was already covered. 
Um, so ladies, at this point, if you want to unmute yourselves, I would love to hear from you ladies. So go ahead and unmute. Um, if you want to ask any questions about this, that I would love it. And then what I'd also love to hear from you ladies is um, if any of you have any prayer requests. So it kind of seemed like I just sort of seemed easier than interrupting to just kind of run through it all. So now that I did run through it all, um, do you ladies have any questions? You're welcome to try your video again too, if you want to, and um, so I can see you uh, since we're through the core teaching part. So uh, if you want to try on videos, if you want to try on microphones, oh, look, there you are. I see you all popping up. <laughs> Yeah, you're still recording. Yeah, that's okay. We'll just keep okay. recording it. If you guys, maybe you guys will have a great question. So we'll record it. Any questions um, from what? Um, yeah, I'm going to go back to the the gift of tongues and speaking in tongues. Okay. I have two visions of my head. One is, you know, those um, historically in the South in the U.S. You know, the tent. Uh, meetings where there would be preachers yeah and um who spoke the gift of tongues mm -hmm. and uh but i don't feel like they incurred did they hit i don't you know so that's one image of someone speaking in mm -hmm. tongues and there's what the holy spirit and pentecost the gift of tongues but um i mean i've never personally experienced the idea mm -hmm. Somebody. Is that laying of hands and charismatic as well? Yeah, I mean, I think kind there of definitely are traditions that are sort of more open to like the um, like the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Um, uh -huh. So my understanding is that tongues, and from I guess from scripture and from experience, that tongues is still an amazing way that people experience God. Um, and like I said, if it's something that you're interested in, you could totally pray about it and maybe God will bring you into people. There also there are there are prayer warriors at our church, which I'm sure um have the gift of tongues. Um, yeah. our prayer team is an amazing group of people. Um and if you want to experience it, I'm sure that they would love to like pray with you. Um I've heard it. It is it sounds really beautiful. Like I said, I kind of asked for it and tried it for a while. It just didn't work for me. Yeah. Um but it's it's a gift and so some people have it and and some people don't um I, and i think the thing that has to we just have to be careful of is in the churches that do encourage it which is great that there's also still order you know because I, there's probably some churches yes. today where people will just sort of all speak in tongues on top of each other and yeah. that's not that's not what you know the whole point is that we have to build each other up in church right and right. what is for the common good I grew up in a, a, a Assembly of God church that um, had a lot of speaking in tongues and such, but like Cynthia said, um, there was definitely, you had to have order to it, um, had to have interpretation and such. And um, if someone was always like trying to speak out in tongues during a service and they didn't have the proper, you know, um, uh, interpretation or they didn't have... Um, it just seemed off. Um, they, the pastors would speak to that person about like, you, you need to stop uh, speaking out and everything. It didn't happen very often, but I, I know there was like once or twice growing up that someone got talked to cause <laughs> they were, they were not doing uh, speaking in tongues uh, properly um, and, and everything. And, um, but 
uh, during the service, like there, there would be times where someone would speak out and then someone else would have an interpretation. And I grew up in a really large congregation. So like um, someone way at one end and then someone at another end could have it. And, um, and then prophecy as well. We would have that sometimes and everything, but they're definitely um, the, having the, the rules and the order was really important. Like mm -hmm. you're not just having people doing weird stuff. <laughs> That's awesome. You've had that experience. I think it's really cool. Yeah, I, I think so. I, um, because it was more common in the church that I grew up with, it wasn't seen as uh, weird or anything. And it makes you, uh, I think, more comfortable with the more th that type of spiritual warfare that you can have um, and everything. Um, but uh, not everybody has it. Like, you know, I mean, lots of people at my church had it, but not everybody did. And then you just, you're okay with it. It's not like you're jealous or anything that you yeah. didn't have that. I've always wondered, can you hear me? Yeah. <laughs> I've always wondered, I've heard, um, two people speak in tongues in our church and I've always wondered and have never asked if they realize that they are speaking in tongues is it or is it a more communication with God that's so within them that they're oblivious to how it's being said but um, or prayed but um, it's interesting that God's given us the spiritual gift but we're also supposed to build up the church and rely more on prophecy than tongues. So mm -hmm. it's, it's just symbolizes so much discretion. Mm -hmm. Totally. And the passage I didn't really read, he really does talk about how tongues is awesome. And it really, it builds up your own like relationship with God. And, and that's great. You know, I, cause I think his context is public worship and he's trying to tell the Corinthians how to have an orderly worship service. And um, so it's not that tongues is, bad or inappropriate it's just it has its time and place but how and i think if someone even, i was gonna say even if someone were sort of like you know maybe praying in tongues kind of under their breath at a church service would probably be fine too you know it's when you kind of get that sort of like out loud you know sort of disruptive that that that's when it needs to have order but how else would you have church if you didn't have prophecy so yeah i think it's exactly. important to address that right totally yeah and prophecy is you know people sort of think of it a little bit differently than like the old testament prophets i think people think of it as like um right speaking and right interpretation of god's word um but i also really like how it talks about how the group the corinthians together had to also evaluate whether what was being said was true according to god's word or was true because they didn't have the bible at that point so they didn't have something to look back on and say oh did this preacher speak correctly you know, is that in God's word? They didn't have God's word. So they had to sort of, as a group, evaluate if what was being said was um, from God. I think that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Cynthia? Yeah. Cynthia, I came to the Lord. I was the Catholic Church, and it was during the time of the uh, charismatic movement cool. in the Catholic Church. And the gift of tongues, which I had experienced with, um, the people that I w were in my church wasn't in a church service. It was used more for intercession and prayer. Yeah. Right. But I never experienced it in the church service. Yeah. Either. That's how I experienced it when I was on the mission field is some women came to the mission base I was staying at 
and just prayed with some of us, prayed over me. Yeah. And it was like, it was amazing. I was like, do it again, do it again. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's that laying on of the hands. Yeah. Usually yeah. in the yeah, Catholic church, it was outside of the church service and outside of mass. Yeah. Yeah. Or during a, a special healing service. Yeah. Right. I've actually been to a, a healing service at St. Bridget a long, long time ago, and it was really powerful. Yeah, they yeah. are. They are. Yeah. We're not even getting into the women. <laughs> we should begin next week. <laughs> okay. And I was like, oh, do I have to go through this? <laughs> I, I really like the, you know, situational and the yeah. content and all that, which is how you've brought the history of the Bible so well to all of us of looking at the bigger picture, looking yeah. at where it is and how it fits. So the harder one actually I think is Timothy. Um I think this one is pretty situational. It's you know mm -hmm. in the context of chaotic worship. Um yeah. and clearly Paul says women can speak and teach in the church. So yeah. um but the first Timothy one is harder. That's the one where he says, I do not permit women to have authority to teach or have authority over a man. And that one, that one's a harder one because he also goes, he makes his argument based on Adam and Eve. So he kind of goes back to like a theological oh, yeah. argument. That one's harder. That one's one I still wrestle with. And I guess the way I currently am in my mindset is it kind of doesn't matter to me because I have a male senior pastor over me. So he's essentially my authority. So if Paul is my authority, says, Cynthia, I want you to preach, then I say, okay, because he's my authority, you know? I'm still mm -hmm. under the authority of uh, a male senior pastor. So that's something I'm still wrestling with. I need to spend more time on that passage, probably honestly, to, and to, to see if I would feel comfortable. I, I think the only question is maybe women, women as like senior pastors, you know? Um, but our church, but the Presbyterian church totally like um like ordains them we feel really confident as presbyterians ordaining women in senior pastoral positions so um yeah it's just it's something that i think we wrestle with but we also still have to look again at the whole canon of scripture and um the roles of women and how jesus treats women and what he expects from them and so cynthia, but, cynthia you know i'm a i'm a presbyterian nerd so yeah. um I uh, uh, went back and actually got the um, the studies that the denomination did on ordaining women, and awesome. uh, they went through two different, you know, year-long studies about whether or not women should be ordained. And um, the and their final conclusion is, if God has gifted them in that way, then you know what can we say? So that was um, back in the early 1900s. That's awesome. That's you know, wonderful. A lot of people say it was just really situational and cultural, you know, mm -hmm. that God calls women to teach. It's time. Yeah. Well, so. I think over and above, God calls women to be supportive. Mm -hmm. And that's what we've been, and that's what we do best. And, mm -hmm. you know, it depends on how we elevate ourselves as to yeah. mm -hmm. the role we should take. But I love the word support. Yeah. And always, I think a question of our hearts, you know, why, well, you know, like if I, that's something I sort of hard check in myself, like I don't have a need to be any more than I am, you know, yeah. I love, I love teaching women. I love being in this role. 
um, I'm just, that's where I want to be, you know? And if God pushes me to do more, then I'll do it. But I don't want to be sort of led by a desire to sort of take the biggest role simply because I can, you know? Well, what a support you are to us. Oh, thanks. Yes. Yeah.